Hi Jeremy. Hey Raf. Hello. <laughs> this is my new voice. We officially come back because we actually followed through with the second episode. Yeah, it's for real. It's yeah. for real. So uh, you, I, I, we record without video, but it, the five minutes intro talk, we usually leave the video on. And then I saw your eye was a little bit, you were clo- keeping one eye closed. So oh, yeah. Well, instinctively? So, no, it's just as um, I put this, I have to put this drop in four times a day. That's like, um, it's like a, it's, it's like a steroid drop. Um, it's a gel, actually. And one of the stupid symptoms of this gel is it can make it feel like you have something in your eye. And so oh my God. it's just like easier for the first few minutes if I, uh, yeah, I closed a little bit. It's, yeah, th- yeah. there's all kinds of nasty things when you put things in your eye constantly. So how, how, how do you feel about your recovery process? Um, I mean, like I talked about on the last episode, it's kind of like, one thing I don't know if I shared is like people get bored of hearing about like if you don't have an instantaneous recovery, like if you have a long term recovery <laughs> or something. Jesus, can, get better already. Come you on. You know, we've all had like an older relative and they're like always complaining about the pain. And you're like at a certain point you kind of shut off. And I've started noticing people shutting off. And so it's, you know, eventually, of course, you have to realize. I'm looking like, at our listeners. They all left. Well, everyone wants a quick, you know, yeah. quick recovery. You know, they, yeah, yeah. they wish get it's, a, rich it's, quick. it's almost like a Seinfeld thing. Like, you know, get well soon, smooth recovery. Da, da, da. No one wants the other story, which is like long, bumpy. Yeah, but I uh, was asking, so I'm, I'm no, I know, I, and I appreciate that. I think it's sincere. I believe uh, yeah. it is. But uh, so we got to yeah. fill these minutes, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. But well, every week is a little bit better. That's the yeah. best way to put it. No, it'll, that's my, that's my question. It'll like, be a couple you feel years like before I'm probably perfect. Okay, but you you do feel like it's yeah it doesn't feel hopeless. But one of the things that I think is important for us to just consider as humans is that things don't always get better, like a hundred percent better. Sometimes things just. I thought are. you were a tech bro. And <laughs> yeah, like sometimes though, like you, it's just a new plat. The plateau is actually a plateau downward, not a plateau upward. I mean, it, it, it's for sure when you're over fifty. You're not going to be in better shape in the next 10 years. There's no way. Yeah, I remember an optometrist telling me, like, you're going to wish you had these eyes, you know, this was a few years ago. But then we we could put on a tech optimism hat and be like, oh, I'm going to have a cool Logitech eyeball in a few years. Yeah, I can remember reading articles about that like 20 years ago. I remember, like, seeing prototypes of, like, low-resolution eyes. Then I saw that... Elon Musk's like neural link that that's their first prototype is a digital digital eye but the, again the resolution was still like pretty basic like it was like a it was like a less than 640 pixels yeah it was like exactly it was like a 160 by 120 max or something like that yeah i think it was even less than that maybe but your other eye is still uh, functioning as it used to yeah yeah it's fine um, yeah it's so, a, yeah. The, the, yeah, in that sense that the, the human body has a backup plan. Yeah, except I was playing a game last night. Have you ever played this game called Tokyo Highway? I don't play any games. Board games? You don't play board games? No. Oh, you're like my mother. Uh, well, anyway, it, it's got Tokyo in it, so I thought maybe you would have played it. It's mm. like you have to build like a little highway out of sticks and like popsicle sticks and kind of like these pylons. But it requires depth perception. It's a little bit like pickup sticks or Jenga but you're positioning your hand in 3D space to put down your yeah. highways. And if you don't do it right, everything falls over. But it became <laughs> obvious really quickly to my you know, 
other the other players at the table that I was going to have a hard time like <laughs> not yeah. knocking over the whole board over Oops. and over again. So that that depth perception thing is actually useful. Um, yeah, it's one of those things that people explain to you what stereo is, how depth works, and you close one eye and the world doesn't immediately look different. Yeah. So you're like, oh, yeah, right. It's an interaction thing. Yeah. Also, but yeah, try yeah. riding a bicycle with one eye closed. Yeah. yeah. I won't be seeing, let me put it this way, I won't be seeing Avatar 2 in 3D. <laughs> uh, I, I had a couple of friends who went to see Avatar Part 2. Yeah. And they said it was hard to get through, that it, the story was that stupid. Because there's papyrus and, subtitles. And these are people, that, uh, I think one of them, his sister works at Disney and he's a huge fan of campy mm-hmm. subcultural things and even he was like uh, it was hard because to it's three it. hours long is that yeah I, I watched the Avatar part one on the airplane yeah I was like oh curious does this hold up and it, it's a small screen on the airplane but the effects seem fine it, mm-hmm. it didn't look antiquated but the story was just very obvious yeah yeah and there's yeah. some very obvious like Maori appropriation like oh yeah and uh, yeah like indigenous appropriation that somehow no one talks about. I don't know why. Maybe it's a celebration, <laughs> but I'm not sure for James Cameron's benefit. Is he giving any of the money away to indigenous groups or? I think so. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I mean, I, that's the whole, I feel like that's the danger of, of these times. It's like, is this person using it yeah. as a strategy or are they actually well he clearly you know, doesn't need the money I mean I feel like all the way back after Terminator 2 you never know like, though like uh, you say oh they don't need the money but well, I heard like, it, oh I my heard neighbor it. has a bigger island I need a bigger island I can see we're getting to a segue here but I could I, I did I did hear an interview with him on another podcast and he was talking about how he he only makes the movies to fund his personal projects that he really wants to do and that's like making submarines and stuff like that. Like he, yeah. you know, he built this, like the deepest, the submarine that can dive the deepest in the world or whatever. But he used Avatar to fund that. And like, yeah. And then he was like, I was running out of money. So I decided to take on three more Avatar movies. So, <laughs> Yeah. But it, it is curious that you remember what a success it was. I don't know if this, the new one is as much of a success. I do remember going to the theater because it was the first movie in 3D. Um, and I brought my parents to see it. But it wasn't the first... You mean the first animated 3D movie? IMAX 3D, I think. Okay. Like, if you've been... Yeah. Well, it had that... Uh, the. My impression was it had this escapism more than any other movie, of like going into this magical world. Yeah. I think it was just around that time that it... it maybe it wasn't the first, but it was the first hyped 3D. Not just animated in 3D, but like 3D... Mo- 3D, like two-eyed 3d like uh stereoscopic yeah and then and then i think you're right like on top of that it was like motion capture at its or what he called james cameron calls performance capture the best ever like so many like such a real character design that you like digital actors so real it almost we could hire an actor yeah Yeah. it's that like so real thing um That is interesting that we're in this time of either hyperproduction or reality TV. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you need it to be real. Be real. Like, that's the big app right now. But the reality TV and TikTok, (laughs) it's exciting because it's spontaneous. It makes sense. Maybe because we're in a time where we're not sure what real is anymore. We're like trying to all agree on what looks real. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's real. 
even though it's not. But we agree it's not, but it looks real. I don't know. Um, but one thing we're going to do today, chatter and banter We're going to answer some questions. We can go back. Yeah, we have a, we have actually have a backlog. Yeah, we have a queue. A queue, a conveyor hey. belt. How do you spell Q? Q E U E. Yeah, is it Q? It's like a French word. U E U E. Okay, like a tail. Yeah. I don't know. So it, I'll, I'll read the three questions. The, the because we're combining them because they cover the same topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you would get one million dollars to conduct a piece of work, what would that be? That's a question from Piri Quick, who asked the question okay, before. Okay, so there's the segue from James Cameron, so that's, right? That's the million dollar artwork. So you just made Avatar and you made a million dollars. Yeah. It's kind of disappointing, but... <laughs> well, we could say a billion. <laughs> and then uh, the next question is from Inton Godel, who also asked us before. And he's asking... He, he's, he says he's been talking about renting a place for a couple of months to exhibit some of the, their works. Mm. I think this is a common um, trope in NFT world that they've made some money without galleries and then they're thinking, oh, maybe we should do a physical presentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how could a place like that be perfect? What would make for the perfect gallery? Perfect museum? Does it make sense to have a museum? Mm. Etc. And then Eva van Ooyen, I think is from the Netherlands. You pronounced uh, it like they were. Yeah. And she's asking, what are our thoughts on wall labels? Every exhibition I had, it's a discussion point. How much does a viewer need to know? Or is mm. it important that they have their own ideas about the work? So you think these are related questions, kind of? Yeah. So $1 million artwork. What would you make? And so we would we answer this sincerely? Would we put a wall label and what would our perfect gallery look like? So I, I think... Yeah, I think these questions go well, well together. Well, for me, they're related because I think one and two, I would spend that million dollars to create a space, I think. You um, would spend a million dollars on the wall labels. Well, it depends on what you think a wall label is. No, mm-hmm. one and two on, on creating a perfect gallery, but it wouldn't necessarily I'm imagining be... that, that meeting of the business cards in American Psycho and they discuss wallpaper text. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I would just put it all into paper stock, graph. Yeah, exactly. I would block up the world's supply of card stock so no one could print business cards. And then... Now we're talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the capital move. No, no, I, I think for me it's a long answer, so I'm, I'm curious what yours is. But I, I, I want to paraphrase nest, yeah. it a little bit with my day today in the, that yeah. I met... Um, two friends at the Whitney and we went to see the Edward Hopper exhibition. Um, mm, cool. So what happened was a friend from the Netherlands was in town and they had ordered an artwork, a print, and it was expensive to ship to the Netherlands, but he was visiting New York and he said, oh, can I have it shipped to you? So I, and I gave it to him. His hotel was around... Uh, Central Park, but he's like, oh, could you come to Central Park? Oh, I'm not there, but I'm planning to go to the Whitney. And mm-hmm. then another friend wanted to see the show. And uh, the guy in the Netherlands is a collector, and then the other friend was Austin Lee. Mm-hmm. And so we get together at the museum in the cafe, just for context of like what a day in New York around the holidays is like, because I enjoyed it so much. I was like, oh, this is great. Like, Mm-hmm. I meet yeah. one of my collectors, I meet my, my friend who's a painter, and it, it, they both give me a different perspective on the museum, because oh, yeah. one looks at it from a collector point of view, I look at it more from a moving image point of view, and Austin more from a painter's point of view, and then we were all shocked, it was so busy, it was unbelievable, mm. it really just, 
line around the block for people to get in. I had no idea that. And everybody wanted to see Edward Hopper. So I was, as much as we've often discussed the relevance of museums and uh, do paintings still hold any cultural value when we're all on the screen and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. we, d- you could talk all day long, but then the, the, the proof was right there. Like people were very excited. And it's not the most famous artist in the world. It's not Banksy, and it's it's not contemporary. And uh, mm. it's, the works are small. They're not spectacular. It's not like an Instagram installation. And people were just very happy to be there, and it was a good atmosphere. So now, do you think it, they were there for the artist or for the overall experience of going yeah, to the Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think they were there for the artist because on the other floors, it was normal occupation and on mm. the Edward Hopper floor it was super packed. Can you so, describe uh, the the works or listeners who haven't been able to see the exhibition? Yeah, so Edward Hopper made paintings of interiors with people and it's a, his most famous work is people sitting at a counter at a sort of a diner f- oh, yeah. but viewed from the outside and he's often known for sharp shadows and uh, views of New York. Mm-hmm. Um, the, he, there was a lot of paintings of rooftops which made me think of when I lived in Mott Street because we had a similar rooftop it's sort of the mess of New York and the, but, but he reflected kind this. of the reality of living in New York a little bit yeah but it, it, it's definitely you could feel that because he's a painter there's a level of simplification or abstraction mm-hmm. that it probably was more chaotic at the time and he's like no there's only two figures in the painting but probably the diner was full of people so there is, of course, it, it, it's not document. It's not a documentary. So, mm-hmm. I've only uh, seen that work online. Was it different to see it in person? Is it large? They're all quite small, especially mm-hmm. by today's standard. I always feel like the art world has had this inflation of scale that mm-hmm. over it's time, like to be impressive, you just yeah. I, someone told me when they went to the that mansion of of Elvis, mm-hmm. uh, Graceland. They went to see it, and by today's standards, it's like a, quite a normal home. <laughs> <laughs> but it also yeah. makes sense if you have a bigger home, you need a bigger painting. Yeah, yeah, so there you go. And yeah, people have bigger butts, and they need bigger cars. <laughs> yeah. um, who, who wrote about that in the sci-fi? <laughs> Things would just yeah. get larger and larger. <laughs> yeah. But, um, okay, but, so, but so that's your perfect uh, museum? Is no, the existing no, no. museum the museum that already exists? No, 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 no. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that I think uh, during COVID, we all predicted the end of the city, the world would be more decentralized, we would oh, be yeah. connected through the blah, 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 and then you go to... And so many people have predicted the crisis of the museum, the crisis of the cultural sector, and people are just addicted to crisis, and I was there, and it was just packed, and people seemed happy. And Well, yeah. obviously, like... Um you know, the tech sector is now, yeah, every CEO has come out and said we were wrong, right? But they were projecting this like as a permanent change that like e-commerce, for example, we are permanently going to stop shopping in physical stores because, you know, we'd, we'd just become, you know, behaviorally more accustomed to ordering online. Yeah. And they were only like somewhat right, like 15% correct. So they, they, they were too... Um... Well, they were predicting for, for a thousand a thousand percent growth overnight that would stay forever, and instead, yeah, you know, it's yeah. like twenty five percent growth, and we've got to go back. You know, Which now we've got to correct backward. Yeah, when you think about it, like any normal business, twenty five growth is that's incredible. Great. Yeah. yeah, but uh, but in venture capital land, you need like forty to fifty percent to be considered like high growth. So yeah, 
So not everyone can be high growth. Didn't make any sense. And, and, and yeah, I, my thing that the museums I really enjoy are regional museums. Mm-hmm. I, I love it when you're in a town and there's, uh, for example, in uh, Savannah, Georgia, there's a museum blanking on the name, but it's the art museum there. Mm-hmm. And they have a couple of surprising works. One was a, a set designer from NBC who painted backdrops for David Letterman, but he also had a fine art career. And he just had these paintings of people watching TV. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I never heard of, never saw it anywhere else. And then you're in this room in in Savannah with a couple of paintings. Someone else made these photorealistic paintings of of floorboards, of Mm -hmm. hardwood floors in perspective. And just very well done. And I just enjoyed being there by myself and, and the feeling of discovering something. That's wonderful. And also, it reminds me of one of the wonderful things about America that's unique-ish to the United States, which is that there, because there's no public money for the arts, there's this long history of like private patronage. But what it resulted in was a lot of independent museums among private art collectors and communities uh, popping up in every small town all over the United States. And so there's just a sheer number of... I think that's similar in in Europe, but then they're publicly funded. But there's lots of interesting small museums all over Europe. You just live in a wasteland. (laughs) You just live in a wasteland. Well, in Canada, that's less the case. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I mean, every every Canadian town has like a small arts center, but a museum has a collection. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, and so that... Like, if you go to the Albright Knox in Buffalo... It has one of the best collections of modern art in the world, but not because they acquired it, but because it was donated to the museum by former residents, right? Yeah. Was that close to where you went to school? Yeah, I went to Syracuse, and I I did show at Albright Knox. How far is Syracuse from the the Albright Knox? Well, Syracuse from there would be like two and a half hours, three hours. Now, the thing about... It is also that in Syracuse, there was a museum called the Everson while I was there. And I think every American museum can have its niche. But like Syracuse, another really small town, like 100,000 people. Why does it have a huge museum? And the museum was dedicated to video art for a long time because David Ross was the the curator there. And he first curator of video art at the Whitney, too. Um, But before that, he was there and he like brought Namjoon Pike and well, yeah, I mean, when you think about it, the big museums all compete for the same artists. So mm-hmm. they all want the big Richard Serra and the big whatever. And then the smaller museums might have to make more interesting choices. So it, it, the, um, I, I think the Albright Knox is, has always been quite forward with technology and photography. Yeah. And so they can't compete with the, the Louvre. They don't have the same... Uh, key pieces but uh, yeah you did say they have some key pieces of modern art well they do but they're like key pieces from when they were founded and like the wealthy people of buffalo at that time were collecting these works so like but at any point in time any museum in the united states and there are all these foundations too right yeah can like accumulate a bizarre collection like i have no doubt and maybe i i'll be proven wrong but the first internet art museum will probably uh come will probably be born in the united states it would be the. It you would don't be the, think the the next museum is an internet art museum? Well, the first collecting museum with a Where large our friend body. Bogomir, yeah. Yeah, with a no, but with a significant body of work of '90s net art through to present day. I mean, it, to me, that's such a no-brainer because you could pick up those works for even one painting, 
you could pick up the whole history of net art for the price of what museums pay for one painting. It's kind of stunning that it doesn't exist, to be honest yeah. with you, now that I'm saying it out loud. Uh, yeah, well, we're brainstorming about the perfect museum. Of course, our love and passion is, is there, and it's those works are so affordable. I'm not saying they're cheap. I'm not saying that any listener of ours could pay that. I'm not debating that it's cheap compared to regular life. But when you hear what, what museums have to pay for a contemporary, trendy painter... Yeah, you're talking five to ten million for one painting. I think you could build a significant. You could have a survey of net art. Every few years, that. I hear about a collector that's trying to get this collection together to do something like that. But then, if I never hear of that person again, like another. Well, year. the problem is that all the old net arts are so grumpy they won't even sell the work. <laughs> that's I don't know if that's hundred percent true. I know a lot of those folks, and like, so do you. And it, yeah, yeah, but they the, but they're the type the right of people way. who who someone is like, okay. Um, I'm interested in having some key works and they're like, okay, <laughs> 500 million, asshole. That was my chance. Well, yeah. they, they sacrificed and, for a very long and time. And you have to crawl on the floor and scream and but, uh, that's how I imagine they would, <laughs> they would respond. Um, but no shade. Maybe the other thing is that that museum already exists. Uh, it's called the internet, right? Like, and it's built by a community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, in theory, that was the... It, like none of these works were ever created for museums. Uh, and not not none, but many were not necessarily created for that context. And the perfect museum for politically for a lot of folks was the one that was the most open and collaborative. And I, I'm I'm writing. I definitely an essay feel right like my that. homepage is my museum. Yeah, that's your personal museum, right? Like the museum yeah. of one. I've made a lot of works about this in my own practice. Like I have the but it's museum. it's the museum in the sense that. It's the database, and it's it has all the source code of everything, and it's it, the works are uh, you lend works from there in the sense like you're lending it to whoever's visiting, mm -hmm. but you might also lend it to other institutions, and they can you can just give them the URL or a download link. I know, but so th that role of the museum of being the repository, that's how I see my server. Yeah, I mean, I've always loved that, like, I used to have a video distributor, and people would have to go in, request a tape, and if one person had the tape, like the video cassette, then another person <laughs> couldn't have it. And I remember Sorry. selling, I, I went in one day, I mean, and I that's was like, classic with CDs and, and uh, vinyl, it's like, you never lend them to anybody, because you'll never get them back. But I remember going in and being like, hey, could you guys, like, put this on a hard drive and just make it infinitely available? And they're like, mm, that wouldn't work, you know, then anyone could have it. And I was like, no. yeah, but I want anyone to have it. And they're like, well, that's just not how this lending thing works. And I was like, I, I got upset. I, I pulled my work out of distribution. Well, the, I know that museums at first were like, film should always be shown as film. It should never be digitized. Mm -hmm. Then slowly they're like, okay, well, it's good for archival and we shouldn't put the film version in the room because it might get damaged. So let's make a digital copy. Mm -hmm. And then they said, well, it's uncompressed, it's the perfect format, we should never show it online. But then they're like, all these students are asking us, so maybe we can send them a private link. Right. And so I think at this point, most museums, the entire digital archive, or the entire moving image archive has been digitized and has even, is in some form of a local network, intranet, password protected thing. Yeah. And they just have to hit one button and they have a perfect video exhibition but they're still afraid to do that well the thing that's still missing in my opinion is what you just described in new york which is like it's similar to going to a movie there is still some value in 
like a community coming together yeah. or even going with a group of people and seeing it from different perspectives. And so for me, the perfect museum, you probably know where this is going, would be the internet, but in physical space. Uh, you tried to do this, I think, with um, your BYOB series. Yeah. yeah. But I think in the future, there's room for us to create, you know, more of an augmented reality version of that. And uh, some people will say it's going to be all advertising in the future, right? When we all have headsets. But I, even though it sounds kind of cheesy as I express it, you know, I've always had this vision in my head that the museum would just be integrated into our daily lives. You go to the grocery store, there's like uh, Jeff Koons next to a box of cereal. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I've, I'm still, uh, I've never had a nice AR experience where I thought this is so much better. I, I don't. It, it, to me, AR is already there when you're having dinner and you show someone what you're working on. Mm -hmm. I don't think the glasses make that better. It's just. Well, I didn't say glasses, did I? Yeah, but that's how people imagine AR. Mm -hmm. I don't I, know. To me, I don't AR, know. I'm saying AR already exists because you're constantly pulling out your phone. Hey, did you see does, this? Yeah. Did you see that? But I think some kind of social element needs to be present. Even in yeah. like the early days for me, that was fa Facebook, though I don't go on there anymore at all. But as an early internet artist, it felt more like a museum but, experience when so it was social. Let's say we, we have a million, which is not enough to build a museum in New York. Yeah, what are we going to build it out of? Where, where would you do it if it had to be more affordable? So it had to be a physical space? Yeah, I mean, we already have a server, so we don't need okay, the money okay, for that. Okay, we have okay. to spend the money. And, and, and let's say that the perfect artwork for a million that we're creating is actually the space. Well, I would buy land, first of all, like, which yeah. is what Dia did as well. But like where I, would you do that? It would be like in uh, some kind of just geologically interesting... <laughs> Mm -hmm. Like somewhere people would want to travel to, because I think like... What about a museum at an airport, at an abandoned uh, newspaper oh, like, stand? So people something. are passing through anyway? You're yeah. Just capturing them like, uh, like flies in the air? I, mean, I feel like we both have spent a lot of time in airports. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're, the, they're the, usually the, they the, try the, and put art the, in airports next to the rolling sidewalks, right? Yeah. Like, the, oh, yeah the, there's art. <laughs> the museum in Amsterdam, uh, the the airport in Amsterdam, Schiphol, which used to be a well-run place and uh, now is chaos, but <laughs> they have a little Rijksmuseum, like a little um, version of the Rijksmuseum. Rijks for less kind of thing, like a little yeah, Rijks light, and then the, there's a <laughs> couple of there's a couple of works hanging there behind glass, and then uh, of course a gift shop. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't mind it. You, you know, I've airport. always like uh, Maurizio Catalan had for a very, very brief time in Chelsea, New York, when Chelsea was like the center of the art world. Like, it kind of still is. I remember I, I saw it at the time. He had yeah. a tiny little museum. that was just a, like a little Barbie sized door yeah. <laughs> into yeah. the world's smallest museum space. Um, but as, as much as these are like sort of we're shying away from the making the, the real grand museum and we're like, oh, how can we do a shitty museum? But... Now that I'm working on this museum show in Germany, it is really nice when everything comes together and like they have the best lighting, the best walls, the best mm -hmm. staff, the best photography, and everything. Everything is very focused. Yeah, um, I think the reason I mentioned the geology though is it's not only that, but like I think it for the the audience, it's the experience of going. Like, you know, if you go to the Whitney, it's also the cafe. It's the cobblestone streets leading up to, you know, through the market. I'm always curious if you ever look highlight. at work. You always talk about everything around the art. Do you look at art? I, I look at it. Yeah? <laughs> I'm curious. 
I'm more because you talk about like why don't we make art on socks? And like I did do that. Yeah. Yeah. Things museum. like that. So yeah, like the gift museum. shop is better than the museum. So that's where we should make. Yeah. Art. Enter yeah. through the gift shop is what that movie should have been called, not exit through the gift yeah. shop. Yeah. <laughs> but so you're you're kind of always going like ah oh, the big white space is so. Whatever. Okay, I've tried to, it's true, I've tried to reinvent the museum every which way so that it's not about the art and it's just yeah. about... It's about marketing. The, the artifice of the... But it's hard to avoid the white cube as an aesthetic object. But what's wrong with the white cube for you? There's nothing the wrong thing. with it. In fact, I think it's like beautiful in, a, in, a, in and of itself. Like, um, it is the object and it's impossible to separate the artwork from the object. Yeah. Like, the plinth for me is the, you know, a plinth, a piece of, you know, like yeah. a wooden podium is the ultimate expression of the aesthetic value of so the I museum still think it, it, everything you describe either the gift shop or the plinth you keep avoiding like please don't make me look at art <laughs> anything but, one of, but well, art. one of the problems with that 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 gesture is that like the plinth can make my dirty Kleenex seem important right or you know a hairball really exciting. kind of but there's there's also the other side that anything you place in an exhibition people are extra critical so if they saw it and a friend made it, they might give it a chance. But in a museum, they're like, ugh. Well, oh, that's interesting. Because like, when you were starting like to go off on Especially like, biennials. Because biennials, to me, they exist solely for people to tear them down. That's the only reason they exist. Mm. People, what did you think of the biennial? Ugh, I would have done that. Right, right, right. Yeah, because um, yeah, you started to make a good point now that I think about it. I was taking it as a bad point. I apologize. But your point is there are perfect conditions to see the work. The right lighting, the right walls, the right floors. The yeah, good and sound those system. conditions could be challenged. Yeah. Similar to a film, like you want to see it on 35 with surround sound, 5.1 channels, Dolby, Atmos, whatever it is. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and I can, as a screen based, like as someone who made screen based work, I was always the argument when I was in school. And I remember you know, teachers like being like, yeah, you got to get the calibrated monitor, da, da, da. And I really revolted against that. And so I think that's where my mind is corrupted and I can't get over it, which is yeah. the, the idea of the screen in your pocket was for me a democratizing. But I, I agree. I was uh, at the museum walking around with Austin and paintings are clear that they're best viewed in a museum and that's fine. Mm -hmm. And then we saw this longer video. I forgot the name, but it was quite interesting but we walked in at two-thirds of the video mm -hmm. and then it's like do you watch the end and then wait know, for the crap. beginning no one wants that i hate it so yeah but so you coming from a, a video art background i think video art is better served online um but my type of work doesn't have a beginning or ending so it's it's more like a painting that you well, walk even by. Well, even when it. I would make works for museums back then, it's why I eventually tended towards not making video works again. Yeah. Was like I'd try and get everything into one frame. That was my policy. Like if you don't understand it in one second, then you should walk away. Because I was so frustrated with my own museum going experience of like the yeah. dark room yeah. with velvet curtains. No one is in there. No one's having fun. It's not the place to be. Actually, well, people actually, actually do go in there, but... There's several ways, like, you could have a big loading circle indicator you, you outside. You who goes in there? People with hangovers that want to get away from their friends. Yeah. <laughs> but, but maybe we agree... I have a migraine. Let me go watch video art. Maybe we agree that for us, narrative video is better shown online than in an exhibition space. I can agree, yeah. I, so I once... Like, actually, the Albright Knox, I showed a video early on that was just me with tentacles dancing. Yeah. 
And it was the, I turned all the lights on in the room. I put colored graphics on the wall. And I was so happy because like all the children at the opening were all in my room dancing together. And mm-hmm. like that to me is like, that's what artists Was that to with, with Tina Rivers Ryan? No, she wasn't there at that time. It was, okay. uh, it was a different curator. Because she's, she's the, I'm always thinking what our audience is. It's some of our audience is the new crypto audience. And she's been very vocal on Twitter and bringing uh, crypto world and uh, mm-hmm. institutional world together. And she did a show on Feral File now. She curated one. I saw that, yeah. Yeah. So that's, of course, a question. And maybe that question from Because she's at the Albright Knox, yeah. Yeah, but that question... And what I've noticed from people from Crypto World is if you don't need the gallery, the gallery is usually the first step into learning how to make exhibitions. Because you make a few, some are better than oh, others. Oh, yeah, of course. Because spatial constraints do matter. Yeah. yeah. It's so different. And then there's that whole question of if the body of work is not museum native, how do you translate that to a museum? So yeah, yeah. if you do, if you have a TikTok account, it's about following that account over time. It's not about the individual works. Mm-hmm. Or if you have an NFT collection, it's about all those works together individually. They're not as strong. And all those kind of questions. Yeah, like how do you manifest the digital in physical space? Actually, yeah. funny, because yesterday you introduced me on text message to Jim Jensky, one of our listeners, I think, and a friend of yours. And I've already met him before, but it didn't matter because he was at an opening where I, I created like a special plinth for a digital piece, like a little, uh, like a special podium. And he was excited by the idea that like that was an idea he could use. And I was like, I didn't mm. actually, I didn't tell him I didn't invent that idea. Like... Uh, actually, Miranda July was the first artist I saw do it really well, where she would create works that were just the podiums for people, and and they would have like little sayings on them, and people. But could you stand. know that that's it goes back way further. Of course it idea. is, but that was the first person that like inspired me to start doing that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But you know that you know that world work uh, plinth of socle du monde the the. It's a conceptual artist, I'm blanking on the name, but he took a plinth and turned it upside down, and that means he put the whole world on that plinth. Oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah. I don't know that work. We should look it up. Yeah. We should know it. Um, uh, I think it's the same guy who, who put the shit in a can, Manzoni. Oh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Does, does it, does, is the, um, can you see like, cause inside usually a plinth doesn't have a bottom, it's hollow and the, you can see particle board or the plywood. I think it's marble. It's really like the most classic type oh, of nice. plinth. Okay. Like a, yeah. That's a beautiful piece. Yeah. I mean, we should just stop the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's the million dollar work. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you know what you, so you bring up, this is a good segue though to our second part question. So you're building a museum. What is a museum? Million dollars for a museum. The label, the internet solves this label problem, but when you're doing a, a show and you have to, the, the point comes in the show where like, where are we going to put the labels? Yeah. Yeah. As an artist, I get very upset immediately. It's a triggering statement right off the bat. <laughs> <laughs> I could imagine that if, if Seinfeld was recorded right now, George Costanza would keep saying, I'm triggered. I'm triggered here. <laughs> Well, I think most artists are because now it's like, okay, what is the work? Is the work the label or the work? Is it, It's going to intersect yeah. with the visual plane. Well, I've, it's, I've, it, I'm working on this show now in Germany and then normally uh, on a wall text or on a label, you put the information and you thank the collector. But 
with NFTs, the collector might change. So instead, we're putting a QR code to OpenSea so you could see the current owner because it could change ne the next day. Mm -hmm. So QR codes are a little cheesy, but ah, they I are helpful. I was wondering whether you're going to say that. I mean, I've done whole exhibitions that are just QR codes at this yeah. point. So my opinion is they've, they've transcended cheesiness to become... I mean, they've become so commonplace with menus since covid i think that changed qr codes yeah i like, feel like it's a i think when technology cheesy, you know yeah when technology gets so pervasive that you don't think about it anymore yeah. Yeah. is the address on my house cheesy you know at a certain point yeah. like yeah. or a url or anything i think qr is now just like useful so people yeah. have a, but I, I know why it was cheesy in the first place because it was used mostly for marketing activations it's like do you want a free app? Scan yeah, this yeah, code yeah. and get your Doritos <laughs> for less or whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I think commerce had appropriated it really early on, like really early. Like I'm talking late 90s even in magazines and stuff. Scan the magazine to get a special offer kind of thing. Yeah. But now... But it, it, yeah. It, maybe the question is, is not just the labels themselves, but how much do you guide people? And uh, for example... If you make an internet native work and you bring that to the museum and that audience is maybe not so well versed and so well read in internet culture, mm -hmm. how much the, that's the role of a museum to guide people and the same way they might say, oh, this still life well, at I think you, time yeah. 400 years ago, the skull was there to remind you that life is temporary yeah. and the cheese was there to remind you that life can be bountiful, etc., etc. I think and we have to distinguish, though, between the didactic and the wall label. Like, traditional wall label was material, artist, you know, date kind of thing. Yeah, that's the minimum sort of pure metadata. And then yeah. there's, like, didactic started creeping into labels, which is, like, here's some background history on why this work is important, you know. Yeah, and, and it, what it often does is it tries to give you a conclusion. Yeah. You're yeah, seeing these five visual see. elements, and this is this this is how yeah. the puzzle is solved. Yeah. yeah, and then that evolved into audio guides by celebrities that also gave you like a <laughs> multimedia tour of the artwork. Mm. <laughs> I, I I curated a show once of uh, the history of screensavers, and instead of wall labels, we did an audio tour, and uh, we had quotes from the makers, and the, and visually it was just less intrusive because the whole show was pitch black. Yeah. Except the projections. So we didn't have to light any wall surface to put text or anything mm. like that. We just had these numbers on the floor of each work, and then you could dial, use the dial to find the appropriate text. Yeah, so I think the quote on the like, tasteful solution to this wall label problem in private galleries where they never put wall labels up, If well, some do, but it's tacky, right? Is Maybe an little, intro text, but not a, a, a label with each work. Yeah. yeah. So they, you know, obviously you do a little map of the gallery. And so the person has to scurry back to the desk and look at, oh, what was that work I was looking at? And then they look at the map and they're like, it must have been that one. There's like a little bit of a, like a where's Waldo. I mean, it, this is almost like a, back to AR, because it really, the dream of Google Lens is that you just point at any object and it will just pull up the Wikipedia bit. Like, you walk around a neighborhood, you could see, like, oh, what's the value of this car? Is it for sale? Uh, when was this bench yeah. made? What is this wood? Da-da-da. I do that with plants all the time right now. On my iPhone, like, if I take a picture of a tree, I'm like, what tree is that? It, yeah. It, there's, like, a little button I can press, and it tells me. Yeah. So that, that idea, if there was a sort of info standard, and people were just used to pointing their phone at stuff, and then 
you could say, do I want the Wikipedia knowledge or do I want the exhibition native text? Yeah. And yeah, that, that would be ideal. I take it. But here's where people, artists will just still be upset and dissatisfied and they'll still be triggered in the year 2050 is they'll, they'll be like, well, now like you're, you're interfering, like the font you chose for that interface. And like, you know, you have someone like Constant Dollar who makes the artwork in the label. <laughs> it always it's like all ASCII constant. characters that are scrolling yeah. or something. Yeah. Uh, and, and so like, we'll never be satisfied because we won't, like, it's not the work. Yeah. yeah. Artists and, used and, to and put my, the label in the work. Yeah. They would like sign it, right? You know? My and, take always on work is a lot of people see work like an egg and they see the visual side as the shell of the egg. And then there's this thing called meaning, which is the nutritious part, and you have to open up the egg to get to the nutrition. And I see it more like a, a Moebius strip. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. A Moebius strip? Moebius, yeah. Yeah, there's no inside or outside. You, you, the, the, out, the visual thing that's happening is the idea. It's not a gateway to an idea. Yeah. And so at the moment of receiving the work, the work is happening. And so I, I really always reject this idea that the work is a puzzle to be solved. No, I know. I used to, for a long time, you know, as you know, like I performed with my works and the whole idea was I would explain the meaning of the work in the work itself. But exactly, still, yeah. That's uh, a Mobius, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, still people would be like, is he serious? Like, is, <laughs> or did he really mean this? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, dear. I, I always feel like the most successful work... So there's, there's, for me, there's three ways of making work. There's, you can go with the very spontaneous, almost too stupid, so primal that you look at it and you're like, this mm. has got to be a it's joke. Like a but Klaus actually, there's more like going on. Like a giant paperclip, like Klaus yeah. Lindenberg or something. Mm -hmm. And then there's the super heady, you need to know a lot. It's very detailed and niche and you need to know everything. But what people love is the Chris Nolan sort of state of mind where it's like, Oh, mm, this makes me feel puzzle. really smart because I yeah, understand it's it. The Da Vinci Code. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of difficult, but he—I was guided, <laughs> and now I know the, the solution to this puzzle. Personally, like yeah. M Night Shyamalan, like, that, that sort of thing. Like, oh, you, I get it. Personally, yeah. I like to go see works, and then later, if I find something out, you know, or I, I'm reading and I come across that work again. It's like a, a long story over time. Like yeah. I don't want all the answers right away. No, I, I, I always compare that to you watch the movie preferably without ever having seen the trailer. Mm -hmm. And then later you might watch interviews with the actors and the director, or sure. you might watch the director's comments, but you don't do that at first. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you want to form some of your own perspective. And but the, but the, the, the counter to that is how do you choose a movie? If you try to be as go into it with as little pre-knowledge as possible. I think it's a and good point. But that's usually based on a system of trust on previous works. So you like the actor or the director, and then you trust that the next movie will be good, and you're you're willing to go in it without having seen the trailer. And, uh, yeah, but if you're just starting out, right? Like, yeah. I mean, maybe that's why the big museums, if we come back to the museum question, they will always pull. Like, people always go to the Tate Modern because there's this reputation you know, presenting the best. And so like, I only get to go to a museum once a year. I just traveled to London. Like, yeah, like, it, oh, I have a couple of hours left. Where mm -hmm. should I go? And then, yeah. you know, the Tate might be a little bit predictable, but it'll be of a certain quality. Yeah. But, I, you know, and when you're, when you have time and you're young and an artist, like 
you very quickly tire of that and you're like scrambling to find like some basement gallery on part of town that's impossible that's to get to. And that's usually through personal collect- connections. That's like, you know someone who either yeah. works there or is showing there. Yeah. But that begins, I think, the journey of like, it's like someone who, I've, I have a friend staying with me here in Calgary right now and like, he's like, I want to go to all the record shops. And I was like, why? And he's like, because there's stuff you can get here on record that you can't get anywhere mm. else. I was like, isn't it available on SoundCloud or something? And he's like, no, no, no. This is stuff that only exists at these record stores because they have these relationships and blah, blah, blah. So yeah. He's I'm, he's on a different plane to me in terms my, of records. Yeah, my favorite interpretation of my work or viewing was that I had a show in London, a group show, and I showed this work called No Disc, and it's a DVD player without a any disc in it, and then it shows this default animation of the logo going mm-hmm. around. Yeah. And this was maybe two thousand two, and so I showed the work there, and nothing happened, and a couple of friends who lived in London, went to see the show. They didn't know I had work in the show. And then they saw the DVD piece and they went like, ha very clever. I get it. And they're looking at the work thinking like, oh, it's one of those artists who's too pretentious to actually make work. So he just found this ready-made animation. And they were staring at it for a while. And then they're like, it's kind of hypnotizing. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of Raphael's work. And it's sort of you stare at it. And then they found out it was my work. So mm. I, I, that's, uh, I really loved that process of not having the information and then getting to the artist somehow. And uh, So that's the ideal. I, I, I do really appreciate this sort of surprise viewing. Yeah, I mean, that's how I've met um, almost every single curator I've ever worked with. And uh, I mean, the opposite would be unsettling, which is like, and I don't think it's very effective, which is you're, you know, you find out who the curators are, you run up to them with your phone and you try and scramble to show them your work or something like that. Um, yeah. Hey, you got to see this. That's like, <laughs> that's like trying to date someone and showing them your bank account or something. Yeah. Let me show you my Tinder profile, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, I think also there's gatekeeping and power and stuff in there that's problematic. And, and so I, you know, coming back on the perfect museum and the wall didactics, they're they're trying to create access for what is a very inaccessible part of the world and culture. And and so in that sense, like I have to take a step back and think, like, okay, for me is different than for others. But like, um, you know, if I go to a wine store, I don't know that much about wine. Um, I do appreciate those labels sometimes, where it's like, oh, it's from Tuscany and it's made by this da 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 da. You know, it's only going to be available for these months. Um, they, I think I've shared this on the podcast before. Like, if you write a store, they did this test where they tried. You know, they sold a camera online. I mean, it was in a store. But it's like a famous consumer study, and in one they just had the technical description of the camera and the price, and in the other they had um, uh, the description and then like a story about the camera, and the price people were willing to pay for the one with the story was like you know, twice as much as the one without a story. And so context does create value, yep. but the story yeah. is either there I, or lived yeah. experience or you, you kind of get it. I always depth. think of, of, you know, the night sky, if you're in the desert or something and you see so many stars and you mm-hmm. need these constellations to sort of, that the amount of stars is too much to comprehend. Too much noise, yeah. Yeah, and then you're like, oh, the Big Dipper. And, and that's what, art movements are it's like oh impressionism they don't exactly fit together but you kind of fit them together to make it comprehensible yeah 
Yep. Yep. So, I mean, where would we spend the million, I guess, if we're coming back to it? Are we still committed to a space? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I'm imagining just... I already decided, I think, actually. You did? I, I'm imagining more of a mobile solution of an LED wall that you could place in every museum and it just travels. But... I give the million to my good friend Sokrowski, who's like, you know, got this Panka gallery oh, yeah, in yeah, Berlin yeah. and he's labored to like try and present I mean, you know, that would be like 10 years of his exhibition budget. He's been, like basically lived like and struggled for 30 years to make <laughs> a space for his friends that are the, you know, the the least shown artists on the planet. Um, yeah. been, you know, internet I'd, artists over the last I, 30 I years. I agree with you that the more obscure the work, the better. I really think it's just more interesting. It's We don't want to see Bill Viola and whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, Bill Viola though, started at that Everson Museum. It started with... Um, you know, Ross believing in showing Bill Viola because Bill Viola yeah. went to Syracuse University. But we've, we've all seen it, so we want to see... And uh, we've all things. seen the, the the famous net artwork, so we want to see even weirder ones. Yeah. At but least I, for me, yeah. Yeah, so I might, I might give it to Sokrowski or someone else that wants to create something that's different. Um, I do think... I, still, the, I think the... The ongoing theme, my analysis of you, is that you're always avoiding what you want. Like, well, oh. that is what I want. Okay. Really? Well, uh, yeah. Really what I want to see is my community do well, just like you. We, I, we actually have exactly the same point of view. We just take like a slightly... This okay. podcast would be otherwise very boring. We take a different approach to the same point of view. Same goal, yeah. The same goal, which is like we all win when we work together. Well, that, yeah, that's definitely... But, for example, with BYOB... For those who don't know, it's a, a projector-based curation platform. It's very DIY. Everybody brings their own projector, and you, everybody just shows whatever they want for one night. It's just a one-night exhibition, something between a happening and an exhibition. And I've seen some where they're more professional, where there's a budget, and I actually think it lessens the idea. So the idea of bringing money into DIY culture, it's not always good. Mm. Oh, it could ruin it. I see. Yeah, I think there's downsides when you start to say, well, we're going to offer every participant a fee to participate. And then all of a sudden it's less open because it's like, oh, we only have this much money. We can only have 20 artists. We can't have 22. Yeah, a lot of people like a lot of people work with Panka Gallery because they have no financial interest in. Yeah. So there's 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 a big difference between zero and a little bit. Mm hmm. Yeah, at the same time, um, you know, maybe you create a trust and it's like an operating like endowment, you know. I know, I know, but I'm not saying artists shouldn't get paid and all these things, but I'm I'm saying in particular with Mm. a certain type of work or a certain type of energy, bringing in money could just kill the spontaneity. I know, I'm just worried about holding, like that's an argument that I, I feel like it's a rags to riches argument, like when we were uncomfortable starting out as young artists, what would we, maybe we would have misused that million, you know, because we wouldn't know how to use it responsibly is what you're saying. But I, I don't know if no. that's true. No, yeah. I, I, I'm not, I'm, that's not what I'm saying, but... Mm. Um, it would change I'm, the type of thing you make though, right? Yeah. Just, mm-hmm. But, but um, no, I, I, I'm... I don't have a clear answer. I don't think we have a clear answer what the perfect museum is. And I, I thought the question was funny because the internet is full of the perfect, the perfect scrambled eggs, the perfect way to polish your shoes. 
Is that the way the question's phrased? Because so the work that the my yeah. the next work that I'm going to put out into the world is called the Perfect Museum. Maybe I read this question. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I should attribute it. Say so thank you, Anton. Uh, yeah, thank you, Anton. Um, it's called the Perfect Museum, and it consists of it's a it's a filter actually, and it's comprised of like the works of two exhibitions, two museum exhibitions. And you lie down on a plinth that is um, a little museum, uh, like staircase, and it, it creates a little bed. Uh, that's like it's a, like you're lying down, and you are the museum building. And then you 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 hold your phone up, and your whole face becomes like the walls of the museum, like archways and things. And then all of the artworks from you sound like a hypnotist. You're at a <laughs> sinking into the sand. But it was your point. You are the museum. And so like all of the artworks fall onto your face and you have it's impossible to for them to look good. Like it's just you could they, they might fall in the right position in the exhibition. But then as soon as you move your face just a little bit, you know, one falls over and it knocks another one over. Yeah. So it's a bit of a, what they call a Pratt fall in the film industry. But like so that but for me, it's impossible to have a perfect exhibition, you know, which is. The, with the wall labels and the light and the <laughs> constraints and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's, you know, part of the beauty of museums in general is that they're constantly searching for who they are. And, but you know, the, the idea of are. perfect is, is also a temporary thing. Like, uh, it's impo- Yeah, exactly. It's we, a, so we, we, we had a dinner. We went on vacation in Quebec in Canada and we had a dinner and it was a sunset. They were all together and the, with the dog and you and Kristen and Christina was a perfect dinner but you don't think while you're doing that like let's make the perfect dinner exactly it's the interstitial or like ephemeral moment but it was unintentional so that maybe the perfect museum should it's random. Uh, maybe maybe that's what i'm trying to say with the the byb and the money i think the museum should be so simple that then things can happen without preparation so Something about like, oh, it's just a space and there's four projectors and you can bring a thumb drive or send a Dropbox link and something that that would be. I, I think would, I think there needs to be. An, yeah, for me, because there's there enough, be there's enough, there's enough classic museums that collect and make the canon and have a lot of weight. And I would want something that's almost like an operating system where you install apps. That That's what the museum should be. It could be, and there's some degree, for me, it would have to have some degree of unpredictability. Like Yeah, yeah. But that, I think you have that when there's not too much intervention. But if you think of the museum as a, as a software or as an operating system, that there's less control of the museum and the artist can install yeah, very crazy. quickly right and now, maybe I'm, remotely. Yeah. I'm pitching the idea right now of like a festival as an API, which sounds kind of cheesy now I say it out loud, but like the idea being that like the best festivals are not ones that are designed. The fire festival. They're not designed entirely by the curators. The audience (laughs) co-creates the festival. Yeah. yeah. Um, Fire festival, does that count as festival as an API? I think probably festival as an API, the one that does exist and it's cringy, but is Burning Man. Um, Yeah. That's the best example probably on the planet right now. Yeah. The best and the worst. Completely, like as an operating system, all it is is ring. It's like a ring system, right? I haven't been. I probably should go before I say anything. I think there's two things I'll never go to (laughs) Burning Man and Miami Basel. I think, yeah, it's like. Definitely going to neither. Burning Man and Avatar (laughs) 2. No, thank you. 
wherever there's papyrus font and dreadlocks on white people, I'm not going to be there. <laughs> you should bring it back. <laughs> the Museum of Cringe. <laughs> Maybe that's what we should do. Uh, anyway, to our dreadlock listeners, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> so, so they. You should it. open Have the Museum <laughs> of Apologies. <laughs> The, have you ever seen the SNL sketch for uh, av- about Avatar with Ryan Gosling? Yeah, about the papyrus font. Papyrus font, yeah. Yeah, that was sure. one of your favorites. That would go in the show notes right now, but just do a Google search for f- papyrus Avatar. Yeah. Um, and the funniest I, thing is he finds out there's a sequel to Avatar in the sketch, and he's like, so they fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> and he's talking nope. to his therapist, and the therapist was like, uh, looks like, nope, it's still papyrus. <laughs> <laughs> then I heard that the subtitles in the new movie are in papyrus. Now it's just laughing. Oh, so you should go. <laughs> There's fully committed to papyrus. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it a free font? It's it's installed in Windows by default. Exactly. Yeah. I think like the joke is like the. Well, he wants to make like... the money. Yeah, he's like, I'm not going to spend money on a font. I need it for my submarine. Right, right, right. Yeah, uh, maybe James Cameron actually designed the logo. He was just on Microsoft Word one day. He's like. Yeah typed the word avatar then went up to the font Beautiful. menu scrolled down what's this hmm tribal <laughs> love it yeah anyway iconic um, yeah iconic so thank you for sending in questions i guess if we can do three questions in an episode we're gonna run out of questions pretty quick yeah but we're gonna get lots more so we have a field recording from piri quick who also asked us about uh, the million dollar artwork and he recorded in the Museum of Applied Arts in, sorry, in the Estonian Museum of Applied Art and Design. Mm. And he loved the wooden floors. So I haven't listened to the field recording, but I like just, we'll just place it without Oh, listening. yeah, wooden, creaky wooden floors in a gallery. Mm. Yeah. Now we're talking. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. All right. Thank you. <laughs>